I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. Ninety-two-year-old Stella Levy held an untold story that she alone could share, but she felt she needed someone to help her tell it. It was her own deeply personal story, to be sure, and the story of her people, yet she scarcely knew where to begin. I lost my father's home, my roots, and since then I haven't found it. I feel a stranger everywhere. As a young Jewish woman whose community became a target of the Nazis, Stella lost her home and her family and many others she knew and loved during the Holocaust. Now, in the twilight of her life, if she was going to share her life story in any sort of public way, she was determined that her days in the death camps, the darkest chapter of her life between deportation and liberation, should not become the primary focus because the aim of genocide goes far beyond just getting rid of individuals. Genocide wants to obliterate a specific society in its totality, literature, music, language, and memory. One proper response to genocide, if we cannot stop it outright, is to refuse to allow those beautiful things to disappear forever. So, for Stella Levy, it never seemed enough to retell the unspeakable horrors of suffering in the camps. Most urgent for her was the task of helping preserve the memory of a vibrant way of life, the soul and the essence of her former community. This episode of Constant Wonder celebrates the efforts of two people, a survivor and a writer, to preserve a vital human memory. And along the way, we'll also hear about some remarkable coincidences or unlikely circumstances that led to the telling of this story. Some people can sit down and write their own story. For me, it has been a long process that involved many years the precious help of a few special friends and much self-examination. My recollections are vivid and precise, but memory is a complex and mysterious entity. For over 70 years, Stella Levy had cherished not just her own memories, but also the heritage of her entire people. For over 500 years, Stella's people lived in the same quarter of the same small city on the same island of Rhodes, only to have their way of life snuffed out on a single day. That community's destruction has never made any sense to Stella, not in the days of her youth, nor now in her great age. I never found the reason why, at the end of the war, they would come to pick up 1,800 people and the grandmother of a friend of mine who was 104 years old. For what? Why? We're not going to rehearse or foreground all that happened in the death camps during World War II, although that tragedy hangs heavily over what you're going to hear. Our story, rather, is about Stella's people and the nearly timeless little world in roads from which she and they were dragged in the middle of July 1944. In ancient times, Rhodes was famed for an enormous statue 
The Colossus, of course, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Rhodes is so old that it even gets a subtle reference in the book of Genesis. The earliest Mediterranean seafarers anchored there thousands of years before the Crusaders made it their home, followed by the Ottoman Turks. No one really knows the age of the stone streets of Stella's childhood home in the Jewish quarter of Rhodes. The Juderia is one of the oldest sections of that ancient city. White and gray stone walls are high and the cobbled streets are narrow and cool, shielded from the harsh Aegean sunlight, crisscrossed by archways. This is the part of Rhodes that was Stella Levy's cradle and playground and place of upbringing. And again, a burning desire in her 10th decade of life has been to preserve its memory. Call it serendipity, fate, fluke. Stella was an energetic 92-year-old when she bumped into Michael Frank, the writer who was destined to help organize and present Stella's story to the world. A lecture was being hosted at the Casa Italiana, an Italian cultural center at New York University, and Michael walked in late. And because I was a little indecisive, because I arrived late, because there was only one seat left at the table, because the subject of my lateness came up in a conversation with a distinguished elderly woman, the whole world opened up. These mysterious happenstances led me there and led me into her life and led Stella into mine. When she saw that I was late to this lecture, she asked me why. And I explained that I was coming from my weekly French lesson. And then she said, would you like to know how French served me in my life? And naturally, I said yes. And she said, well, when I arrived at Auschwitz, quite the opening line right there, I and the group of my friends from Rhodes were outsiders in every way. They didn't know what to do with us. We didn't speak Yiddish, which was the lingua franca of the camp or any German. We didn't speak Polish. We didn't speak anything that anyone spoke there until they discovered that we spoke some French. That's Michael Frank, a widely published freelance writer whose book is titled 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. Initially, Stella just wanted Michael to help put a little polish on her English for a lecture she was preparing. But what followed was a friendship and a shared quest extending over years. The two would visit week after week, Saturday after Saturday, and often on days in between. It was time-consuming with a ticking clock. You'll recall that Stella was 92 when they met by happenstance. Six years later, Michael was finally ready to start shaping the book. It wasn't easy, and it took a long time. And she grew impatient with me as she turned 95, 96. 97, when are you going to write this book? I'm waiting for it. And eventually I thought, okay, I feel it. I have enough information. Let me give it a, let me give it a go. A still vibrant Stella Levy turned 100 years young this year. And the book was well worth the wait. It beautifully captures her life and her family and her people in their ancient setting of roads. Here's an excerpt from prepared remarks that Stella gave at an event marking the book's release. I have lived most of my life in New York, but I am still the little girl and the young woman from Rhodes. I hope my beloved son, John, who is here with me, and his children will recognize in that girl his mother and their grandmother, Stella. 
I feel the book is my link to the community and family I loved so much and an introduction to that forgotten world for the generations to come. So if Stella was 92 when Michael Frank met her, aging and anxious to tell her story, and she was 99 when it was finally launched, what took so long? Michael's answer gets straight to the organic heart of story and memory. Memory entails much more than just lists of facts and dates. Memory can shift and move. It just isn't always fully cooperative. You don't have your story pre-prepared and locked up in your brain. You're not merely dictating it to someone. Should you be so lucky as to find someone who will listen to it? She was going through a process of excavating her own life, formulating it, coming to understand it, digging, excavating, existential archaeology, if you will, in response to someone's curiosity, to questions, to the surfacing of your own memories. She would remember something, and then that brought on another memory, and another one still or we'd listen to a scrap of music that she remembered, and there was a lot of music in her childhood and youth, and we would look for it online and play a few, a little bit of it. Then she'd think, ah, yes, and then, oh, and what's more, and oh, I never told you. So there's a whole process of a messy, incoherent, in a way, unchronological, illogical unfolding of a life. And that's where my work as the writer eventually came in, of course, was to take it all apart and put it all back together again. So let's take a closer look at Stella's childhood world. You'll find roads just off the mainland of modern Turkey. It's culturally Greek, but for nearly 500 years it was part of Ottoman Turkey. In a cruel trick of history, Italy seized the island as Turkish power faded in the first years of the 20th century. When the Italians were defeated in World War II, it fell very briefly and tragically into German hands. Had Rhodes remained Turkish, the Jews there would have been safe from the Holocaust. Turkey chose to be neutral through World War II, so Germany would not have touched it. It was that annexation by Italy that pulled Rhodes right into the dark shadow of the Axis. Now, it so happens that Italy made that move in 1923, the selfsame year in which Stella Levy was born there into a Jewish family. The Jewish quarter, or La Juderia, was nestled within the walled ancient city of Rhodes on the northwest edge of the island. At the time of Stella's birth, the waves of modernity were already crashing onto that island and its Jewish enclave. New languages, new models of education, more opportunities abroad, fewer opportunities at home, and the coming of the Italians played a big role in this. Those crashing waves were eroding centuries of tradition, but many ancient patterns of life remained intact. The rhythms of five centuries of Sephardic Jewish life playing out on the narrow streets, the beaches, in the synagogues, by the communal ovens, places of laughter, music, and conviviality. Here's Michael Frank again. She called it our own little piece of the earth. So her identification with this place, this fertile, vibrant, aromatic, little bit of Eden in the Eastern Mediterranean, just off the Turkish coast. She was a swimmer, a diver. She and her family, like many families in the Judea, practically moved to the beach. 
which was at the foot of the road for the duration of the summer. They had kept a little cabina there, a little wood structure that they shared with another family. It was festively painted by Greek artisans. They had their meals there. They all but lived there in the summer. I sometimes jokingly refer to it as the Malibu of the Mediterranean, because this is what it was. It was a beach culture for the young people and a place of friendship and dancing and a great deal of music. Jews had been living on roads since long before the time of Christ. New Jewish infusions had arrived over the centuries, and in 1492, a large influx of Jews from Spain arrived and reshaped the character of the Jewish community there. Ferdinand and Isabella of Columbus fame were consolidating their control over that part of the Iberian Peninsula that would become modern Spain. And this new Catholic nation asserted its identity by expelling both Muslims and Jews. Stella's Jewish forebears found refuge on the opposite end of the Mediterranean, and that's how Ladino, a Judeo-Spanish dialect, became the dominant language of Jews on roads. This world of the Judea was dominated by a much older, more traditional culture, where her grandmothers, for example, wore long velvet robes and toques, and scarves, she never once saw them undressed or with their hair down, where these same grandmothers and other grandmothers, other old women in the neighborhood, performed medicinal and spiritual cures on the young people, where they practiced cupping and applied leeches, where there was no running water in the houses until the Italians took over. But even in Stella's time, there were no showers, there were no baths, there was no oven. They took their food to be cooked at the communal oven. Just before Stella's time, the water came from wells. There was no electricity just before Stella's time. The Italians brought the electricity. She grew up in this very cohesive community with like-minded people. Everyone spoke Judeo-Spanish, which is their form of Ladino, a language they'd brought with them from Spain and had been modified under the Turks. Few places could ever be more multicultural. This island has never been particularly isolated. It's a cultural crossroads. So here we are with another mention of Turkish rule, which, as we indicated earlier, was in effect for nearly 500 years before Stella was born. The Ottoman Turks being a Muslim power that allowed the Sephardic Jews space for living. The language of most Sephardic Jews throughout the region was a dialect of Spanish, just as the language of most Jews in Central and Eastern Europe was Yiddish, essentially a dialect of German. Let's pause here for a second to hear Stella telling a little bit about the Juderia in her mother tongue. La historia de la comunidad es que la, la comunidad era una comunidad, había pleitos y había paz, como todas las comunidades. Eh, porque bebíamos mucho, como decir, uno en arriba de otro. Uno te moraba abajo y el otro arriba. Y después si tenían uh, un pozo de agua, ¿no? Y tal vez el de arriba también quería el agua de la que estaba abajo. Entonces había siempre estas cosas. Pero para mí era siempre eh, muy divertente. <risa> If you speak Spanish, you may have noted that Stella's Ladino, at least in this particular clip, is essentially 99% Castilian. 
Now, here's what Stella was saying in English. The community had disputes in harmony, like all communities, because we all lived very, how would you say it, one on top of another, one below and the other above. Then, if they had a well for water, one might want the water from the one below, so there were always these kinds of things. But for me, it was always very entertaining. Stella's world was intimate and tightly woven. At its peak, the population was over 4,000 inhabitants. If the greater population of Rhodes was not culturally isolated from other ethnicities of the eastern Mediterranean region, the small Judaria within the walls of Old Rhodes was nevertheless quite insular culturally, and its inhabitants lived in a manner that was practically communal. The doors were left open, the windows were left open. You could hear the women singing as they cooked and as they sang their babies to sleep. You could hear arguments, conversations, food cooking. Everyone knew everyone's business. And the Jewish calendar dominated not only the rhythm of the week, but the rhythm of the year with everything from Shabbat to Passover, which was like a major ordeal. The houses would be not just cleaned, but painted. The streets wouldn't be swept, but washed coordinated, the woman at the top of the street would start washing, and then the next woman would come out and push the dirty water down and so on until it made its way out to the sea. The heart of all this beautifully chaotic living was a street called the Calleja de la Chavura. Every function of Jewish life had its intersection with this street. Alimentation, education, worship, courtship, marriage, childbearing, and death— This street featured the school, the undertaker, even the receptacle for worn-out Torahs that were required to be disposed of properly without defilement. It was cobblestoned like many of the streets in the Judea, but this one I think had a certain special quality to Stella because of its ancientness. The mortician had his shop that she was so afraid of. It had death. It had life because it had a synagogue. And the communal oven, of course, a centerpiece of the Judidia. It's really kind of amazing to sit in a room with someone now in 2023 who grew up taking her family's evening meals to be cooked in an oven outside of the house. It's kind of mind-boggling to me. But of course, that was a wonderful place for Stella because while the food was cooking, she hung out with her friends who were doing the same thing. Communal cooking? No running water, no electricity until the Italians came. The Juderia had been nearly frozen in time for so long that it retained elements of very, very ancient tradition. Some of these were so obscure that nobody really understood their origin. Here's one. At odd intervals, a man in some official capacity would run through the streets warning people to protect their water from the dulce, Periodically, a call would go through the neighborhood that the dulce was coming, which meant that the water, the drinking water, was for a time going to be poisoned. And so all the women would run to cover up the bowls of water or buckets of water that they'd drawn from wells or to put water aside and close the tops and put taps in the bottles. And no one would go near this water for as many hours as it took for the rabbi then to announce that all was clear again and you could go back to drinking or using the water. Stella has no idea where this originates, but it was one of the more curious superstitions of her early childhood. So these practices can be traced back 
far back into the past. Yeah, I think probably you could say that from there, around the time of their first establishing themselves in Rhodes, so 400 years ago, 450 maybe, but until the early 20th century, it's hard to imagine that a lot of the practices changed or daily life changed greatly. Until the early 20th century, in the Levy family, they had a well in their courtyard, and that was the source, in fact, of their drinking water, all their water. When the Italians came, starting in 1912, they brought running water into the Judea, but the Levies never had a, a bathtub. They never had a shower. They did have water in the kitchen. They did have a faucet, but they never had some of the, what we consider the modern conveniences. It was a very backward-looking, though forward-moving period. And that's the thing that I think makes it so interesting, as I have often said, that Stella belongs to these two worlds maybe sees both the best and the worst of both of them. Michael Frank's recently released book is titled 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. Being a member of a closely knit small community meant a proliferation of cousins and many close friendships. Among Stella's cousins was one of her best friends when she was a young child. He was a boy named Niso Cohen. She spent a lot of time with the Cohen family. Stella had many, many close connections in the Judidia, but the Cohens lived very close by, and he was a, a kind of brother to her, I think you could say, a companion, a brother. She used to have sleepovers at his house. She listened to his radio when they were older in secret because, of course, the Jews were forbidden after 1938 from owning or listening to radio programs. She saw him in synagogue, and it was watching him in synagogue approach the bima that she had what she describes as her probably her most and one of her only truly and profoundly spiritual experiences. He was a very special young man in her life. What about that spiritual experience? You know, Stella is a very deeply identified Jewish person, but she's not a, a deep believer in God, which is why I think it was all the more notable to her, maybe even perplexing to her as a young woman to be up in the women's gallery, the women's section of the synagogue, to look down on Niso and the other men, of course, and to hear the word Adonai said and sung, actually, and then to feel something shifting inside of her, something she couldn't describe, she even struggled to describe it to me these many decades later, but something that felt like an understanding, a feeling, a sensation that there was something larger, something larger at work on her life and her consciousness. And she decided to think, or rather ask, whether perhaps that might be the presence of God. She was unsure. So, Stella talked to you about how she was visiting the Cohen family when she had her very first close-up encounter with death. This was Teo Yaakov, Niso's father, right? Teo Yaakov, Niso's father, or Stella's uncle. He had been ill, and uh, Stella had accompanied Niso, her friend, and Teo Yaakov to the Italian doctor, and had helped translate because she spoke such good Italian. and. 
The doctor had said he had an advanced cancer and there was nothing he could do. And Stella was there at the house one day and Tio Yakov gave her a look and then closed his eyes. It was the first dead person she'd ever seen. She ran to his wife and told her, you must stop doing the laundry because she knew that you were not allowed to do the laundry when someone was dying or had died. Then she ran to her father and said, you need to come, Tio Yakov has died. And her father said, how, how do you know that, Stella? And she said, because I was there and I saw him close his eyes and take his last breath. And in fact, that was her first experience of death. Stella knew Tio Yaakov and his family well, so that hit hard. Deaths of members in the broader community were not infrequent, though, beyond her inner circle of friends and family. Stella spoke with Michael about how the neighborhood children reacted to funeral processions that routinely passed by her home. Well, Stella, like I think almost any other normal child, was scared of the idea of death, scared of the funeral processions that passed through the Judea, always right by her house, because her house was directly in front of the synagogue, one of the synagogues, and before you buried a body, you went by or into the synagogue. And so she saw a lot of death going by, passing by, and sure, she was afraid of it. She used to run inside the house. She wasn't alone. A lot of the children and even some of the adults did when these funeral possessions went by and closed herself inside and locked the door and stood back by about four feet or more. Death itself instilled fear, naturally, but also the markers and the rituals of death. When Stella's own grandmother died, Stella's aunt, Tia Rachel by name, eldest daughter of the deceased, stepped out onto the porch to perform the traditional public lamentation, loud wailing called Los Lloros. Her brother, Stella's uncle, stopped her. Here's how Michael depicts this scene, which feels like the very moment that an ancient tradition about death itself died. Not today, Maslia told his sister. We've moved beyond this sort of thing now. Tia Rachel turned around and sat down, quietly humiliated. And that was the end of Los Lloros in Stella's family, maybe in the whole Juderia. The very island itself was starting to feel too small for many young people. Having sat for centuries under the Turkish umbrella, this small Jewish enclave was now more and more under the sway of Western European ambitions and values. And long before the Nazis got a bee in their bonnet, Stella's sheltered world was already splintering. Change and departure had become constant themes among her people. You know, I think of Stella as having come of age in a world that had one foot in the 19th century and one in the early 20th. But her own life crystallizes this in so many ways because she grew up in the company and under the influence of these grandmothers who'd been born in the middle of the 19th century, who shared their wisdom, their superstitions, their proverbs, their homeopathic cures, their fears, and their insights with Stella. There is beauty in all of this. But if you're a spirited young girl with a modern bent or modern inclinations, there's also some claustrophobia to it. 
she was in a way lucky, I think, to see and experience some of the pre-Italian roads. But once the Italians colonized the island officially in 1923, as it happens the year Stella was born, there was this modernity coming at her. And it's not as though she went to choose it or was conscious of what was happening. It was simply the world into which she was born, a world where music, movies, books, urban planning, infrastructure, sewers, electricity, running water were changing the world into which, say, her parents and grandparents had been born. Whatever widening horizons of opportunity the Italians brought, they also brought with them Mussolini, Italian fascism, anti-Semitic attitudes and racial laws, and ultimately German fascism and genocide. Even after the war, after Auschwitz, as Stella found herself displaced with nowhere to call home and no remaining group to call her people, no surviving identity, her Italian citizenship became her backstop. But that's jumping ahead a bit too far in the story. Let's rewind a bit as though I hadn't quite brought the Nazis into the picture yet. Stella and her siblings were all caught in the changing tides and changing times and the arrival of the Italians. She is the seventh born in her family, and she has a really remarkable older sister named Felici, who is the intellectual in the family, curious about really everything from the ancient history of the island. She's interested in Christian liturgy, her sister, in music. She's interested in the way people worship in mosques, even though they couldn't go inside of them. She's interested in the origins of the Jews. She's interested and reads everything. And this sister, Felicie, goes out of the neighborhood for upper school, for high school, and studies with the suore, the Italian nuns, in the Italian school outside of the neighborhood, thereby setting a major example, you might even call it a challenge, for Stella, who was also bright, also curious, and more so as she grew up. Felicie's electric curiosity rubbed off on Stella, expanding her vision. Stella also went outside the neighborhood to study at Catholic school. When the Catholic girls had catechism on Wednesdays, a rabbi would come to teach the Jewish girls. Before the war, there was substantial interaction among various groups in Rhodes, and this contributed to broadening Stella's world and mind. We began our episode with Stella telling Michael that French had helped save her life at Auschwitz. Earlier on Rhodes, as we've noted, Stella's mother tongue was a dialect of Spanish, and the official government and school language had become Italian, and the island's Gentiles were of Greek and Turkic origin. So why did Stella speak French? There were lots of liabilities to being Jewish, but there were a few blessings— one being that there were often people who you didn't know personally, even people who lived far beyond the sea, who considered you part of their extended family, and some of these people lived in France. The children were educated in the French language because the Alliance Israelite, the Alliance Universelle, was an organization that was bringing Western culture to the Middle East and to the Eastern Mediterranean had started at the end of the 19th century, introducing schools that were intended to modernize these, I'm putting all this in quotation marks, backward Jews, and help give them more possibility in their lives. Stella's older siblings had all attended the Alliance, and they used to speak French to each other to 
cut out the younger children and the parents. And of course, Stella being Stella didn't like that so much. And so she taught herself French by listening to them. And when she went to school in Italian, because by then the Italians had seized the island and changed the school system as part of their transformation of local culture, French was still the second language after Italian. All of this European influence, of course, also implied a pathway out of Rhodes. And that path was well-trod. Much of Stella's family had already left Rhodes for good, several even before she was born. I still remember the day when she was talking to me about her very oldest brother, Moritz, who'd been sent at age 10, I think, to Los Angeles with an aunt and uncle, because that is where the future lay. That's where possibility lay. That's where there would be eventually, when he was old enough, an, uh, an opportunity to develop a career. And then I thought he left before Stella and her next oldest sister, Renee, were born. That means since the parents were then later deported with everyone else to Auschwitz and he never saw them again, that this family never was in one place at one time. What is a family that doesn't sit in a room at table together, that doesn't sit in a garden for a photograph together, that doesn't go to synagogue together to celebrate a bar mitzvah, a wedding, to observe a funeral? It's a very different meaning of the word family, isn't it? And so I was very haunted by this idea that not only did these people never come together in time or space, there was no photograph of them made together. There was no shared memory of a time, an event, an encounter together. It stayed with me a long time, that idea. It still does. At age 14, Stella packed a suitcase. Her mother asked her where she was going. She said she would one day be going to the Italian mainland for college. So she was just getting ready. Her mom shrugged. But this dream of hers did not fade. For several years, she would pack and repack the suitcase, imagining her future and all the possibilities. The suitcase symbolized her plans to be independent, to leave Rhodes on her own terms and seek her way in a modern world. What would have happened if there had been no war? What would have happened to her family if there had been no deportation? And the economics of Rhodes and of life in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean, for Jews and for everyone, really, the economics were undergoing a big change. And I think that by the time it was Stella and Renee, they were the last two in their family. And she said, well, we would have all left. I mean, she jokingly says, because there were no men to marry. And not that that was central in her consciousness about how she wanted to build her life. But the truth is, to seek jobs, to have education, to have opportunities, they would have left. And her parents would probably have gone to California to be with the majority of the older siblings. That's a much more likely alternative life that would have been led. What would your parents, I asked her, have done when they got to Los Angeles, which you can't imagine being any more distant in all of its complexion and substance from Rhodes. And she said, well, they would have adapted. That's what Jews have always done. One of Stella's most wry, maybe darkly ironic refrains that I've heard her offer many times in the years we've spoken to each other has been something along the lines of, well, there we were on, on the road again, on the move again. That's the story of the Jews. Stella was on the threshold of adulthood when an aggressive new Italian governor 
began zealously working to remake the island to his own liking. Even the cemetery wasn't sacred. Under Deveki, who was one of the fascist governors and the most stringent on the island, Jewish cemetery was ordered closed to create a public park. There was a lot of infrastructure improvement that went on under the Italian governors, some of it good, like bringing running water and electricity, for example, to the Judea, restoring buildings and palaces put up by the Knights of St. John, who governed the island before the Ottomans did. There were all kinds of, you could say, positive changes in the island, but certainly from the point of view of the community of Sephardic Jews, being required to dig up and move the graves of their dead was an extremely traumatic moment. It brought on a kind of collective mourning in the community as people had to see their relatives disinterred and put in new graves in the newly established cemetery. World War II snuck up more quietly on roads. The eastern Mediterranean was geographically far removed from Europe, From their perspective, those tragedies seem to be happening on some stage far, far away in northern Europe, but the danger crept ever closer. In 1938, the Italian fascists promulgated new racial laws that curtailed Jewish rights severely. Jews were fired from all public employment. Actors and musicians were fired. Lawyers, doctors, and midwives, severely limited. All traces of Judaism were stripped from schools and textbooks. Stella's father lost his livelihood. Stella lost her access to schooling, and she was 15 at the time. It was extremely hard for her, the girl with the packed suitcase. Still more hints came their way of what the future might hold for them. Two different refugee ships, carrying hundreds of Jews trying to reach Palestine, foundered near Rhodes, one in 1939 and one in 1940. The Jewish refugee passengers were rescued and temporarily brought to Rhodes. Local inhabitants of the Juderia were, of course, intensely interested in what would become of these refugees. The first group eventually found a new ship and made it to Palestine. The second group was eventually transferred to camps on the Italian mainland, to be liberated later by Allied soldiers. The people of the Juderia could not know, as they saw this second group of refugees leaving for Italian detention, that these were the lucky ones, not their own Jewish community destined for Germany. On July 19th, 1944, the Nazis began rounding up 1,673 Sephardic Jews of Rhodes. Within 24 hours, essentially all members of the community were in detention, and on the 23rd, they were forced onto boats, which would take them to trains on the mainland headed for death camps in Eastern Europe. The oldest of the deportees, Stella recalls, was 104 years old. Of all these, just 120 women and 30 men would survive. Uh, Seventy years ago, the Jewish community of Rhodes came to an end, and so did my, uh, my life. I lost my father's home, my roots, and since then I haven't found it. I feel a stranger everywhere. Stella did not return to Rhodes until the 1970s. 
She came back several times after that, once with cameras for a documentary someone was making. In 2015, Michael and Stella visited Rhodes together. We stood there by the water at the place where, seven decades earlier, Stella, her parents, her uncle, her cousins, her entire community were loaded onto these three boats and taken away from Rhodes to Piraeus, to Athens, where they were put in prison for several days, then loaded on those fateful trains to Auschwitz. What a thing to stand back in that place where you were sent away from, back there, to come back to be a living person at the end or near the end of your life and return to the key turning point in your life and the lives of your community, your family. It was quite remarkable. It's not often that we see through the action of man a community coming to an end from one day to the next. It's quite astonishing to think that you can simply arrest all these people on one day and take them away from this place where they'd lived for half a millennium across many generations. What does it mean to bring an end to a living organism like that? It's, it's something very haunting. And now it's time to fit in a puzzle piece from when Stella and Michael first met in New York City. How did speaking French help save Stella and her sister? Well, the answer is that this language skill put them in contact with a cohort of French-speaking Auschwitz prisoners who were savvy to the ways of the camp with tricks and tools of survival that they could share. So she arrived at Auschwitz with a very good knowledge of spoken French and written French. And when this was discovered, they said, all right, we'll put you with the Belgian and French women who, being Ashkenazi and not Sephardic, spoke Yiddish and understood some German. And because they spoke Yiddish and understood German, these women understood also the orders that were being given to them daily. They understood the rules of the camp. They understood what they were being told to do from morning until night. And as Selig said to me that evening, because they understood, so could we. And because we understood, we were able to survive. Stella Levy herself remains flummoxed as to how the Germans found time and money and motivation to reach out to roads far, far out of the path of the conflict. And this during a time when the outcome of the war was no longer in doubt and German Nazis had much to worry about besides pursuing Jews to the ends of the earth. Again, the aim of genocide is not just to obliterate individuals, Genocide is calculated to destroy an entire society as though it had never existed. Countering such an evil objective requires an active preservation and memorialization, to whatever extent that's still possible, a preservation of what once was. This is what Stella's purpose has been, and Michael Frank has helped support her in this effort. It matters that this story be told because... When she goes, very few people will be left who were eyewitnesses to this remarkable, magical, thriving, vibrant world that lived, changed, and evolved over hundreds of years and probably would have gone on living, changing, and evolving had it not been brought to that tragic, abrupt end in July of 1944 when the whole community was deported to Auschwitz.
I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're speaking with Michael Frank, author of 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. The visits from Michael to Stella began when she was 92. The book was published when she was 99. Michael seems to have taken his time and never been terribly worried about the window available to the both of them. I don't know if Michael would put it in these terms exactly, but I sense that in his steady patience, that at some level, he must have perceived a hand of fate or maybe necessity sustaining their project. That the two of them met at all was a miracle in the first place. If it took another miracle to keep Stella vibrant long enough to finish the project, well, why not expect one? You know, it's easy looking back now to think, well, this is a sort of predestined experience, right? You you meet someone, you have a wonderful story, you're a writer, you're going to write it. It didn't feel anything like that in the living of it, let me assure you. It was a kind of enchantment, really. Stella is an amazing storyteller. I call her a modern-day Scheherazade. She takes you through certain plot points and then leaves them hanging. Arab folk tradition, Scheherazade. You might know about this. She's the bride of a bloodthirsty sultan who prolongs her life because she's able to tell riveting stories every night and leaves the resolution hanging. I think we call those cliffhangers. She does this night after night after night. Week after week, month after month, year after year, Michael listened to Stella, asked questions took notes, and waited patiently for some possible shape for this story to emerge. And honestly, I simply listened. I took notes because, you know, I take notes even when my mother calls. I take notes on everything all the time. That's how I'm made. And of course, in a small way, I thought, well, this is a significant person who's had a significant life about a significant event that is not known to the degree that it might be. And sure, I probably should take notes. But There was this dance between us, and it was under her control in the beginning, for sure. And now I understand so much more. I understand that for Stella to tell her story to an unknown person, a stranger, she had to come to know him, me, and trust him. Trust me. The trust had to develop between us. And that took a long time to happen. If it ever has completely, who knows? It's a very, very delicate relationship. We've chosen in this episode to hold to Stella's original purpose of trying to revive or restore to memory something of that lost ancient community in Rhodes. There isn't enough time for us to do justice to that, let alone to capture Stella's experience at Auschwitz, where she loses both parents and many friends. Not enough time to narrate her life after the war. In the book, Michael carries her story forward as Stella and her sister Renee survive reunite with siblings who had emigrated earlier. Michael follows her from Italy to the United States to New York City, where she got married, bore a son, got divorced, built a productive life and career. We just can't possibly cover everything Michael does in the book. She worked in the textile business as a broker. She was very accomplished and successful. She built a world of connection to friends. It's one of the great achievements, I think, of Stella's life is her connectedness to other people. She still makes friends at 100 years of age. She's curious. She's engaged. She gives of herself. She's steady. She's very alive still. It took her a long time, though, to get back to Rhodes, where she had to wrestle with her demons, 
the ghosts of place, people, and history. So Stella was deported in 1944 and didn't return to Rhodes until 1977. That's 33 years. And she did that because one of her great friends, a man called Etchi Ullman, who met her and heard her story and said, you have to go back. You have to face this demon. And he practically dragged her there. He was part Turkish himself. He made the trip possible. He made the trip happen. And it was very painful for her. It was painful, but there was also a sense of, I think, comfort at the fact that she could face that demon down and maybe in certain small ways reconnect with the place, which was there and, as I said before, not there at the same time. And then over the years, she was still working full-time then, often in Italy for her job. Stella would now and then just slip over to Rhodes. She took her sister Renee back for the one and only time. She met up with other survivors, other people she'd grown up with. Visiting Rhodes was not a homecoming because none of the exiles came home. Not a single one of those 1,700 or so people who had been deported ever returned to live in Rhodes full-time. The Judidia, and this is really quite remarkable when you think about it, was erased overnight in July of 1944. It was... It was not theirs, because of course the people were not there anymore. Structurally, in terms of building material and architecture, the Judidia remains, parts of the Judidia remain. It's true that the large synagogue was uh, bombed. It's true that there are side streets still today and roads with houses that were destroyed. But there are other streets full of houses. Stella's own childhood home still exists the bench on which her grandmother spent much of her late life sitting and watching the world go by is still there on the street built into the house where Stella grew up. But the building material, and this is what Stella means when I think when she says that she can't go home again, the building material is not a home. A home is where the people are. A home is where the life is. A home is where the memories are. Not stones, not streets, not trees, sadly. The last time Stella went to Rhodes was in 2015. It was Michael's only visit there with her. They were able to soak in the atmosphere and literally soak in the ocean as well. That was quite wonderful to see Stella put on her swimming costume and tie up her hair. I loved it. And to be swimming with her in the water, which had meant so much to her when she was growing up. But she was uneasy on that trip. You know, she had decided to go alone with people visiting her. And I think she was maybe, it was not comfortable entirely for her. I thought a lot about that. I wasn't there very long. Fortunately, a niece of hers arrived just as I was leaving. I would, I would have been uncomfortable to leave her there by herself. I think she was maybe even more haunted that time. Maybe because she went without an obvious task, a movie to be appearing in or uh, a building to be uh, restoring. You know, she didn't have homework. She was there with her ghosts, and, um, and I think she really felt them. And she hasn't been back since. So now Stella Levy is 100 years old, and that's a poetic bookend to the title of Michael Frank's book, 100 Saturdays. Now that she has carried and delivered that burden of memory, she has time to think about what it all means. Stella believes that her life has had meaning, that things have happened in it that have been complicated and difficult and significant, and that by sharing her story, 
maybe she can do her own small part to draw attention to the horrible consequences of unchecked hatred and to make a beautiful record of this century of life. There's no question that as Stella's life draws to its end, she wanted to make a gift in her family to her children, her grandchildren, her nieces and nephews. And by doing that, though, she ends up extending her family, I think, to all of the people who read this book, who listen to her as I've listened to her. I feel in some way that I've inherited Stella's story, and I think all readers of this book receive some kind of gift from her, which is really very beautiful. I asked Michael how he thinks about the little miracles we noted that led to this story being told. Stella's survival at Auschwitz, her longevity since then, and of her chance meeting with Michael. The Judavia was a kind of mystical place, you know, full of uncanny, mysterious happenings. And the way I think about it now is, while the Judavia of Stella's youth is gone, some of it seems to have traveled with her to New York. Some of it seems to have constituted around her, and some of it may be behind these curious, wonderful happenings that have taken place between her and me and in her own life in the years since. I noted always with great interest how many dreams were in Stella's life, her life, her sister's lives, the lives of her mother. Some of them seemed to foretell the future. Some spoke in a very deep way to the present. One powerful dream came to Stella while they were working on the book. This dream centered on the notion of home. After her deportation to Auschwitz, Stella never really felt at home anywhere. And the home that her parents had owned in Rhodes, well, after the war, it was sold. No one returned there. The idea of home was fraught. And this dream was about home. I remember coming to Stella's house one morning where she seemed quite unrested and a little bit unwell. And she told me that she'd had a very vivid dream the night before in which first Renee and then her older sister Sarah appeared. And there was a confusion about home, about a house. Was it the house in Rhodes? She wasn't sure. Or was it a modern house, a different house? And in this dream that Stella had, her sister Renee, then dead, of course, said to her, don't you want to come to this house? This house is better than all the others. And I think Stella took that it's hard not to, to mean that perhaps Renee was summoning her, calling her to this next world. You can't be 100 years old and not think about your own death and where you're going and what that next home is going to be, literal or metaphorical or whatever form it will take. And I know that those thoughts are very much with Stella these days. Here's an example of how Michael knows this. It comes from the final pages of the book. I had another of those disturbing dreams last night, she says after a pause. I dreamt I was walking toward a light-filled room, and what did I see there but groups of people from Rhodes? I thought, what are they doing here? Did I invite them? Rebecca Amado was there, my cousin, and two of my sisters, Renee and Selma. I thought, are they calling me? Have they come to collect me? Is it my time to join them? How did it make you feel, I ask, when you saw them? Puzzled, more than anything else. But then my mother appeared, and that upset me, and woke me up, 
It was five in the morning and I was shaking. It was one of those dreams that continue into your morning, your, your whole day. You know the kind, the, the ones that blur the line between your waking life and your dreaming life. I nod. I know the kind. I'm curious, I say. In the dream, what language was everyone speaking? Judeo-Spanish? Italian? English? She considers for a moment, then shakes her head. I, I don't know. Dreams, uh, dreams are sometimes beyond language. They tell you where you most deeply belong. And where is that? With the people who call you. Thanks for joining us for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Our guest today was Michael Frank, author of 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. Some of the music you heard in this episode was used by permission and provided by Daphne Moore and Nina Stern and their ensemble East of the River. The music comes from their upcoming album, Ija Mia. Recordings of Stella Levy's voice were from events related to the release of the book also used with permission. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Lily Jensen and Jenna McMartin. Sound design was by Dallin Jepson. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. If you'd like to hear more about the experience of the Sephardic Jews, our sister podcast called In Good Faith has a special series with fascinating stories all tied to the religious and cultural history of the country of Turkey. We've already learned from Stella Levy's story how the Ottomans offered Jews a haven where they could escape the Spanish Inquisition. Hear an interview with a Jewish community leader, Avram Seventi, in Izmir. He discusses his family's move to Turkey 500 years ago and his current relationship with Israel. You can hear that interview in episode 165, Turkey's Jewish Communities. That's the podcast In Good Faith.